Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 497 of So You Want to Be a Writer, the podcast that's all about writing and publishing. My name's Valerie Koo. I'm the CEO of the Australian Writer Centre and your host. We talk about all things to do with the world of writing, publishing, and how to succeed as an author or writer. So, what have you guys been up to this week? This week, I went to the amazing exhibition of flower arrangements at the Royal Botanic Gardens in Sydney, and oh, it was just absolutely stunning. Lots of photos. Uh, and then I popped in to see the Archibald Prize at the Art Gallery of New South Wales, which is one of Australia's biggest art prizes. And I know that's nothing to do with writing, but I think that it's so important to take yourself out on a creative date whenever you can, because often it's when you do things outside of your usual space that you get ideas that, you know, these inspiration sparks in you and plus it was also great to see some of the portraits of authors that artists had decided to paint like Helen Garner and Benjamin Law and other authors that are in the prize. If you're not familiar with the Archibald it's awarded annually. It's a little bit of a controversial prize but you know it is awarded annually to the best portrait and I quote preferentially of some man or woman distinguished in art letters, science or politics painted by any artist resident in Australasia. So, you know, they're always very impressive and it's great to wander around the art gallery also to look at some of the other exhibits. So, of course, when I got home, I decided to keep the visual inspiration going. And here's a tip for you in case you can't make it to the art gallery and you want to explore some of this art inspiration at home. If you're using Chrome for your internet, there's an extension you can install which displays a new artwork every day. So each time you open a new tab, the background is a piece of, well, is a picture of a piece of art from, and they're from galleries from all over the world. So each day you can be inspired by a beautiful painting. But the great part is, if you want to know more about the piece, you can just click on it and it will take you to some information about it. So a great way to expose yourself to more art, but also to get that extra inspiration that, you know, sometimes doesn't come from words. This particular extension, Chrome extension, is part of a project from Google called Google Arts and Culture, which also actually lets you explore loads of collections and themes and exhibits and museums and galleries, all from the comfort of your own computer. So it's a great research tool as well. You can look at artworks based on colour or material or location or history or just about anything. So if you need a little bit of information like that for your story, this could be a good resource. But you know, if you're someone who is inspired by art at all, you're just going to find it fascinating. Um, For the extension, you can go to the Chrome web store um, to have a look at it. We'll put the link in the show notes or you can just Google it. (laughs) All right, now let's move on to our competition this week. We have three copies of The Cutting by Richard McHugh. It's 2016. Lance Alcock, sole heir to an iron ore fortune, 40-ish bachelor, has just lost control of his life's work. His newly opened mine, Madeline's Monster, named after his pioneering iron-fisted grandmother, was supposed to be a worker's paradise in the Pilbara. But the monster can't cover its costs, and Lance's Korean finances are trying to steal his company out from under him. 
Lance has appointed administrators to APC Minerals and his 1,200 workers have lost their jobs. Among those newly unemployed when the monster goes under is young engineer Will Fulbright. Will's downhill slide has been gathering pace for some time. His formerly loved-up girlfriend, Justine Jamison, director of the refugee advocacy group Free All Refugee Children, F-A-R-C, think about how, what that spells, and lefty girl about town doesn't seem to like him much anymore. Will has no income, not many prospects, a slightly out of control drug pro- problem and finds himself back on his mother's couch in Fairfield. Meanwhile, out on the Bronte cutting, Will's old employer Lance Alcock and Will's girlfriend Justine are on a personal collision course of their own. This is a novel of our times. It's about money, class, race, privilege, families, friends, lovers, duplicity and corruption and whether it's possible for anyone to get what they deserve anymore. We have three copies to give away. The Cutting by Richard McHugh. Entries close on the 5th of September. Just go to writercentercomau slash win and follow the instructions for your chance to win. And of course, if you're at that URL in the future, don't worry, there'll be some other fantastic prize for you to win and competition to enter. That's writercentercomau slash win. And now... Are you ready for the word of the week? Well, I hope you are, because here it is. Commensal. That's C-O-M-M-E-N... S-A-L, commensal. Now, this is an adjective and it means eating together at the same table or as a noun, it's a companion at a meal. So you could say, Rebecca was my regular commensal at lunchtime. It has another meaning in science of animals or plants living with each other, but neither one at the expense of the other, as opposed to a parasite, for example. And this is actually how you'll see it more commonly used these days. But it would be nice to see a return of the original meaning. I quite like it. Commensal. John Bon Jovi is a regular commensal in my dreams. Nice. And that was the word of the week. If you're enjoying this podcast, you may also like the book that Alison Tate and I have written together called So You Want to Be a Writer, How to Get Started While You Still Have a Day Job. Full of practical tips, motivation and inspiration, it's ideal for anyone who's thinking of dipping their toes into the wonderful world of writing. We've created a blueprint for aspiring writers to follow and it's suitable regardless of whether you want to plunge straight into this new career or if you need to explore it while you're still busy in your day job. Let us hold your hand as you turn your dream into a reality. Buy your copy today at soyouwanttobeariter.com.au forward slash book. Now let's move on to our writer in residence this week. I have a cracker for you. And of course, stay tuned after the interview for more fun facts about the world of writing. Today, we're talking to Emily Henry and her latest book is Book Lovers. Emily has written four young adult novels and three rom-coms and is a book talk sensation. Emily, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Now, you're talking to us from Cincinnati, Ohio, is that right? That is right. 
I think you're the first person from Ohio that we've spoken to. <laughs> I'm the first person from Ohio ever. <laughs> no, that doesn't surprise me. I mean, it's a great, it's a great place, but it's not, you know, it's a smaller city. It's not like the metropolis that I think writers tend to gravitate toward. Now, I thoroughly enjoyed your latest book, Book Lovers. I was saying to my friend Penny the other day, oh my God, you've got to read this book. This is totally you. It's so much fun. For people who haven't got their hands on a copy yet, can you tell us what it's about? Yes. Book Lovers is about Nora Stevens, who is this ambitious, kind of cutthroat, a little bit uptight literary agent who lives in New York City. And she has her life kind of down to a science in most ways and is pretty happy with it. But the one thing that just keeps evading her is a good romantic relationship. And she keeps getting dumped in this very specific way over and over again, which is that she'll find someone who's perfect for her. They'll date. And then he'll get sent out of town for business, usually to some, you know, small quaint town and he'll fall in love with someone else and uproot his whole life in the city and move and, you know, marry a local baker or whatever, what have you. So <laughs> this keeps happening to her over and over again. And her younger sister, Libby, convinces her that maybe she needs to go have her own small town kind of transformational love story. So they go together to have this sister's trip to um, this town called Sunshine Falls, North Carolina, this little mountain town. Um, and they have this checklist where, the, you know, with all these little things from small town romance novels and Hallmark small town, you know, romance movies, just things that they're going to do to get Nora outside of her comfort zone and to have this new experience. But while she's there, she keeps running into her nemesis from back in the city, Charlie Lastra, who is this brooding, opinionated, kind of difficult editor. And he is just messing up her plans left and right. Now, the story is so much fun and there's a lot I want to, I'm going to unpack later with you about the humor in it, but this is, is this your fifth novel or? It is my, it's my third um, rom-com. Yes. And before that I had, I had um, four young adult novels. One of those was co-written for it. Yeah. Right, right. So you did young adult novels that were, you know, um, a little bit, mystery maybe a touch otherworldly and now and then you moved into rom-coms why (laughs) well I honestly think that it was for similar reasons to the reason we see so many readers moving into rom-coms we have Mm. all these new romance readers and I think it really is just that the world has felt so chaotic and scary and dark and you know it's just been too much for a handful of years now it's just all been too much and I, I wrote my first rom-com, Beach Read, fully 100% for myself. I, at the time, had no idea if I would even try to publish it. It was just this chunk of downtime I had between YA novels. And I wanted to immerse myself in a really nice, warm, romantic story because I wanted to escape the world. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and so, you know, that was something I kind of clung to in a time when I was experiencing a lot of anxiety and fear. And it was something that I could throw myself into and just feel this escape. And then a couple of years down the road, I saw this big boom in romance and told my agent and, you know, then the rest is history. But I think that's why so many readers are reading romance for the first time now too. Yeah, absolutely. So not only are they rom-coms, but in particularly to this audience who are listening, watching, um, this centers around, as you say, a literary agent. Mm 
And yeah. um, uh, one of your previous novels, it's it's a couple of writers who are, you know, hanging out together and they're swapping genres. So you've also you're also setting it in the writing world. It was there a particular reason for that? Yeah, you know. I, it's so much easier to write about something you already know all of the ins and outs of. <laughs> and I think, I think, you know, like if we think back to some of the oldest story, I'm going to take my earrings out because I realize they're going to probably clink against these. Um, oh, sure. Earbuds. <laughs> I got one out <laughs> discreetly in the last question. Okay. So let me back up. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So when you think back to kind of like the first thing that I think of as a rom-com, it's sort of like the Jane Austen books. And and the thing that's so funny about those to me is that she's just observing her world and she knows what's funny about it, even though it's like the world she lives in every day. And I think with doing these rom-coms centered on publishing and writing, it's like, I know what's funny about that. I'm in all of the group texts with all of my writer <laughs> friends, you know, complaining about the same things and um, laughing about the same things and, you know, worrying about the same things. Like, am I the worst client my agent has ever had? Am I like so annoying? It, am I allowed to tell my editor? No, I don't want to make this change, all of that stuff. <laughs> and so I think it's just like, I know what's funny about it. And I, and I can write other careers and I have, and I will do more of it, but it's like, maybe not quite as fun to play in that sandbox because I don't know what's funny about those jobs. Mm, it's interesting that you say you know what's funny about it because knowing what's funny is different to be able different um, to than being able to put it on the page. And this is a story where the premise isn't necessarily inherently funny, but the situations, I was laughing out loud, <laughs> you know, oh, or, or, you. or, or sm you know, smirking, going, oh, my God, that's so true. So how, how do you know when you've got it right? Because it is very easy to get it wrong. Oh, gosh. I don't. <laughs> I honestly don't normally know I've got it right until people are reading it. Like, really, with book lovers, mm. I, it was the first book I had written post, you know, COVID starting. Um, it was the first book I'd written in a global pandemic. And because of that, I was just, my life was so much smaller and so different than it had been. And I really thought I'm writing the least funny book of all time because I just wasn't around people to like see what landed, like to see what people laugh about, you know? And so I really didn't know for sure until advanced copies were going out. I, I wish that I could give better you know, writing advice is for how to be funny, how to know that it's funny. But I really just think even when you think something's funny, that doesn't mean anyone else will think it's funny. You really don't know that until you have readers. I have to say one time I did laugh out loud because I started it actually. Um, and when listeners, when you get your copy of this book, you'll understand why. But I started it while I was on my Peloton. Yes. So <laughs> and of course, that's one of the references that, that, that you know, at, at the start. So I thought yeah. it was really, um, uh, it really resonated with me. Okay. So tell me about your process. You, and let's talk about this book, you, because you yeah. started it during the pandemic you thought of this idea, what then, how long did it take between the idea forming and you starting to write? 
Ooh, that's a good question. I don't know if I, I might, you know, I'm basically going to be saying things that I'm not positive are true, but I do know <laughs> what my general process is every time. So it will have okay. been something like this. So normally what I do is I have the idea for the premise and I just sit with it and I don't even really write anything down. You know, I might've written the pitch to send to my editor and say like, can I write this book? <laughs> do you want to do this book together? Um, but other than that, I don't tend to write a ton down at first. I like to just kind of have it floating around in my head for a couple of weeks. And I sit down to write when I have about three scenes or moments in, in my head for that premise. And so really early on um, with book lovers, it was like, okay, I know what the premise is. I know it's this big city woman going to a small town, this fish out of water story, except she just keeps bumping into a reminder of her life back in the city. So I knew that was a setup and instantly I knew, okay, I need to get her on a date in this kind of like honky tonk sort of place. That's just very, you know, of a piece with its, with this little town they're in. I need to get her on a date there with someone who would be like the lead of like a Hallmark movie. And then I knew I needed to get Charlie, this other character into that room so that he could make her furious <laughs> or, you know, like the scene looks very different from how I envisioned it, but it just was like the premise set up these couple of moments for me where it was like this, you know, this is kind of going to lend itself to this. This would be a funny thing to happen. And sometimes there'll be like a tiny bit of dialogue or a joke that I think fits because of the premise. And so that I might write down in my phone or on a little notebook. And then once I have like those three moments, which are normally like kind of the beginning of the book, like the start, maybe the first scene, and then a, a scene in kind of the developing romance, and then something about the ending, then I will sit down and I will just draft 2000 words a day, start to finish, <laughs> and have no idea what's going, you know, what's going on, what's going to happen. It is a total wreck. It is not something I recommend other people do, <laughs> but it is how I do it. And then I just rewrite it after that, basically. Wow, that's fascinating. So you think of these three scenes at key points, beginning sort of yeah. somewhere in the middle and yeah. then somewhere at the end, and then you start writing into the void. Now, 2,000 words a day, is that five days a week, seven days a week? What, that's what is seven that? seven days a week, yeah, yeah, unless there's like a real emergency. When I'm drafting, I write every single day, and, you know, sometimes things come up and I can't. But I find that if I take even a day away, but especially more than one day away, I lose the sense of urgency and momentum. And I just become so much more afraid of sitting down and writing, you know, that fear of like, this is going to be terrible. What do I do? And the longer I, I let myself step away from it, the worse the fear gets. And it's not pretty. Wow. So what do you do? Do you ensconce yourself in a, in a cottage in the woods so you don't get <laughs> disturbed or do you, you, what's, what's your writing space? My writing space, luckily, well, I was going to say, luckily I'm not that particular and I, you know, I don't have all these rituals, but I actually do have a pretty hard time writing outside of my own house. So it is tricky. It's like, sometimes I'll have a trip planned, you know, during drafting season and it just can't be helped. And I will just have to sit down and hammer words out wherever I am. But when I'm at home, I kind of just move around <laughs> between couches. And like I said, it's like 2000 words a day. And sometimes I'll get that done in like an hour and a half because things are going so well. And sometimes it's like I'm writing until 9 p.m. and just barely squeaking in under that 2000 word deadline. Wow, that is discipline. Do you give yourself a reward, like an ice cream or something at the oh end my of gosh. the <laughs> Sometimes, you know what? Sometimes I do. If I'm if I'm having a rough a rough kind of writing week, 
I'll do something where it's like, oh, I can only play this video game once I hit 2000 words or like I can only watch this TV show or whatever. (laughs) But honestly, it's like, I don't know. I think discipline is like one of the very few things that I just have. (laughs) Like there's so much about this job that is really, really hard, but somehow I, I, I just think it's like, there's a, the imaginary deadline works for me. I don't know. I, it just, Mm. it's like, I literally can't do anything until I finish this. And that it's just like a a fact. And I don't need any proof that I can't do anything. Like, it doesn't matter that I could get up and walk away at any point in my mind. I know, no, you can't do anything until you hit that 2000 word limit. That's (laughs) great. So 2000 words a day, how long did it take you to do this draft, the first draft of book lovers? So Book lovers, it was probably about six weeks. Um, it'll be 2000 words a day, but like I said, I don't outline and I don't plan. And so sometimes the books will end up shorter than they need to be because it's like, I've just kind of gotten the basic beats down. And that's usually a good sign. Honestly, what happens more likely is the book ends up way too long because I had no idea what I was doing. And it was just a lot of days of sitting down and writing 2000 words that are meaningless. So with book lovers, it was a little bit more of that. It was this very bloated first draft where it was like six to eight weeks, probably. And a lot of that didn't make it into the final book. And a lot of the scenes that did or looked totally different. And it was just, you know, um, I I just think it's easier to work from an existing draft, no matter how bad. And so the first draft for me is about breaking through that fear barrier. It's like, okay, this book exists. Now I can fix it. That is fascinating. So you just said that a lot of it didn't end up being in yeah. the book and a lot of the the scenes that are in there were really rewritten. So t- talk yeah. to me about your rewriting process. You've got your first draft now, six to eight weeks have passed. Do you have a break or do you plunge straight into the rewriting process? And can you break down that rewriting process? What does that look like? Oh gosh, I can certainly try. <laughs> <laughs> so if I have time for a break, I will take a break. And that's something for writers who are struggling, that's, I think, really valuable. If you can have that time where you can sit away from a manuscript for a couple of weeks, I just think it's worth it every time because it's so hard to know what you're even looking at when you're that deep into the muck of it. And so, you know, with book lovers, it I don't remember if I had that break or if the schedule kind of required me to turn it right back around, but I probably had I probably had like a week or at least a few days. And then because my first drafts are not something that could be turned into an editor, it was like, I sit with, you know, I sit away from it for a couple of days up to a couple of weeks. And I think about it some more. And then I go back and I start rereading it and kind of taking notes about what works and what doesn't. But the big thing for me um, for from first draft to second draft is at the end of the first draft, I normally figure out what the emotional arc is for the characters. And so when I go back to rewrite that second draft, it's like, okay, now like for Nora and Charlie, for example, um, you know, so much of Nora, Nora's life, she's realized as she has like kind of um, moderated like what she wants. Like she's, she, she's very, she needs to be in control and she's afraid of loss. And so she's sort of like, you know, this is, these are all the ways that I control my life and that I don't let myself want something that I don't think I can have. And so getting to the end of the book and realizing that about Nora, it's like, now I know exactly what I need to do to her character when I go back and rewrite her, because now I finally know her. And so I think for, for second draft, the more I know the characters, the more, you know, the more the editing process just falls into place and it really works. And it's all 
it's just all about character. But at the end of the first draft, that's that's my starting point. It's like these characters, now I know them a little bit better and I need to go back through the existing book and I'll cut all of those scenes where nothing happens and I'll look for places where there's no tension. I'll you know spice up the dialogue, but mostly it's like now I know this character, and so the way she would talk is different. You know what she'd be doing with her mannerisms is different. Um, the decisions she'd make are different, and w- kind of what she needs to go through to to get through her emotional arc. I don't know that until I've already written a draft. Wow, that is fascinating. So do you do that when you do the rewrite and you identify all of those things? Do you do that in a linear fashion? I do. I usually do. You know, sometimes like by the time it gets to my editor and I have an edit letter, it might be like, okay, here's the section on characters. And so I'll go through and work on characters um, just kind of find every time that character pops up and make, make little changes. But I do like to go from start to finish, like pretty much every time I like to do, do it that way where it's like, it, it keeps me, it's so easy to lose track of your characters and where they're at mentally and emotionally. And I think by going back to the beginning and working through on one particular change, I'm tracking with them and I know, you know, what they're going through, what's in their head. I understand their motivations. And again, if I take a couple of days away from that and I came, come back and sit down to write or work on a new scene, it's like, I might've totally dropped that, that um, line on where they were in the previous scene and have to go back and kind of mm. find it again. So if you were so disciplined with your first draft of 2000 words a day, when you do your rewrite, do you have a similar target? No, (laughs) I don't really. I don't really. You know, that's so interesting. I think what it is for the first draft is I'm so afraid of the blank page. I really Mm. am. And like every day when I'm drafting for the first time, I wake up with a pit in my stomach that does not go away until I sit down and start writing because I'm just so afraid of messing up this idea that's in my head. And so it is like, it's like I'm writing a draft, like I'm ripping off a band-aid sort of, where it's like, I don't want a chance to second guess myself or um, freak myself out too much. And after that, it's, I don't need that arbitrary goal for the day because it's, it's so much more like this book exists. And now I'm just going to spend, you know, five Mm -hmm. to eight hours a day kind of taking one scene and puzzling over it and trying to fix it. And you know, I, I, I stick with the, I stay disciplined with the later drafts, but I don't need like a length to go through mm. at that point. Talk to me about um, when you decided you wanted to be a writer, an author. Yeah. Um, I think it's, I feel like this is such a boring answer because so many of us were this way, but it really was just like as a kid loving reading so much mm. that when I would get caught up on the series that I was reading and there wouldn't be any new books, I would just kind of write something that wasn't quite fan fiction, but was sort of, you know, loosely inspired by whatever I was reading. And at the point that I realized being an author was a job that people had and that there were people on the other end of these books, like, you know, sitting down at their computers or typewriters or whatever. Basically then I was like, oh good. Like that's the job I'll have. Um, wow. Yeah. But it wasn't like, you know, I wasn't the kid who was super driven in every single way and writing all, all the time. Like I really barely wrote from middle school all through high school. And then I went to college and had this partial creative writing scholarship. And so I had to take writing classes to keep that scholarship money. And so because of that, I was 
you know, back in, in writing in a more serious way. And I loved it so much that at that point, again, I was like, okay, I think I do want to write books. Like I'm back where I started when I was seven years old. So, um, yeah, I, I pretty much knew. I also, I really wanted to teach college at that point because I just loved being in an academic environment, but then I didn't, I just, I graduated and kept writing and, you know, just settled into, to this life. So cast your mind back to your very first novel. Can you tell us the story of your break? How did you get, you know, that first offer? Oh, yeah. 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 So I had queried agents with this middle grade fantasy novel that was so bad, like just so, so, so bad. And I'd queried it for probably a year, not super seriously. It was like I'd sent to a handful of agents and sit for a couple of months. And I was just so afraid of rejection and failure that it was, it wasn't like very active querying. And then I wrote this YA contemporary fantasy novel and edited a bunch on my own and kind of did the same thing where it was like, I was kind of querying, but I was just getting rejections, like form rejections. I finally got one full request and then the rejection I got just, you know, made me feel so bad that I took another very long stretch of time of not querying. And then finally, honestly, I was at a job that I hated. <laughs> and in some ways, I think that was good for me because it made me that much more desperate to just like fail hard and fast. I just was like, I need to get out of this job. This is so excruciatingly miserable. And I was at my job supposed to be doing my actual work and I was like, okay, well, I've rewritten my query for this YA fantasy and I'm just gonna, um, I'm gonna just send it to one agent to gauge, you know, if I've gotten a little bit better at querying possibly. And so I found an agent on Query Tracker and read some interviews with her and she seemed really cool. And so I sent her this query and then like an hour later, she requested the full and I just started panicking because I was like, this is the only agent I've sent this to. Like, what have I done? And I sent her the full and I just had this feeling that she was going to be my agent. I was just like, she's going to offer. And she read the book that night and she offered. And um, then I like had quickly sent out a couple more, you know, queries and let those agents know, Hey, I actually already have an offer now. And, and so did some phone calls, but I ended up signing with this agent who, who at the time was just like, she was just starting out and she was really young and hungry and, um, I later realized on query tracker that she, it said that she was like one of the top most responsive agents like out there because she was so actively, uh, acquiring. And so she, she was my first agent. She has since retired from agenting, but she was wonderful. And we went on sub for a, a book that for the book she'd signed me for and nobody wanted it, but there were a couple of positive responses to my writing. And so then the next, you know, I wrote another book and we went on sub for that and it was one offer. And I think that's like, so important for people to hear and realize because you hear about the big bidding wars and auctions and all of that. And I think that it gets kind of lost that like, you really just need one person to say yes to you. Um, and sure. It feels good if a lot of people are clamoring for you, but even with beach read, it wasn't, there were like a couple of editors who were interested, but we had gotten tons of rejections already by the time we sold beach read. Wow. Okay. So anyway, that set you on the path which is fantastic, of being uh, of being an author. So you have been described as a book talk sensation. Tell us about when that was all happening. Well, and still happening. That, yeah, that was so wild because at the beginning of the pandemic, 
I like downloaded TikTok and got overwhelmed and just deleted it. And like two (laughs) more times, probably I like downloaded it and was like, I can't learn this and deleted it again. And then when people we meet on vacation or you and me on vacation is the Australian title. Um, When you and me on vacation came out, it was doing well, like Beatrice had done really well. and, And it seemed like it was doing well. And then a couple of weeks after you and me came out, suddenly there was just this huge spike in sales. And I'd already been like, so thrilled with the sales was just like, this is as good as it gets. Like, I'm just very happy to be here. And there was this random spike. And I noticed it because I have access to my sales numbers. I noticed it, my agent noticed it, my editor noticed it. And so we were all in this email and we were like, did anyone else see this like weird, (laughs) random, like peak in the line graph of like my sales. And we were all kind of trying to figure out what it was because I hadn't done any events. You know, it was just like, I don't know what this could be. And then people started sending me on Instagram um, a couple of different TikToks that were just very, very, very cute, just like enthusiastic readers being excited about the book. And then I sent those to my uh, editor and agent and was like, could it be this? <laughs> because book talk was also very new at that point. Like, I, mm-hmm. or maybe it wasn't, but I don't know if the industry in quotes had really any idea how powerful it was going to be. Yes. I think that. Was and the so, case. yeah. So we were like, oh, wow, that, <laughs> that did more than like all of the very hard work that we're all doing, like, the, you know, just passionate readers, like talking about loving a book, basically. Isn't that awesome? Yay for TikTok, it's right? Awesome. <laughs> yeah. It's so cool. Like it just makes me, it gives me hope because I feel like reading had lost so much of its like sex appeal or something. And to see like book talk be this huge thing that drives all these sales and all of that, mm. it just feels like there's this love of books that feels bigger than it has in a long time. And, and yeah, it's so cool that it's not, it's reader driven. It's not publishers throwing money at the wall and being like, we got you a car with your cover on it. And you're going to, you know, it's like just readers who love, who love books and want to talk about them. So cool. Love it. So are you currently working on your next book? I am. My next book is called happy place. And I am, I cannot remember the exact date that it will be out over there. It's either end of April or early May, but it will be coming out in 2023 in in 2023. And, um, yeah, I'm so excited about it. It is the story of these, uh, college sweethearts, Wynn and Harriet, who, um, have this tight knit group of friends and they always go on this trip every year together. And it's these three couples, but Wynn and Harriet have secretly broken up and, you know, basically because this is their last chance to take this trip they decide that they'll wait to tell everyone until the trip is over, that they are no longer together. And it has been a whirlwind of a writing process. I'm like almost done with edits on it now. So we're not far away at all, even though it sounds like it's so far away. So obviously it's written, but you're in the editing process. Have you then already thought of the book after that? I have a few ideas. I do. And, and we'll have to see. I haven't gotten like approval on any of them. And in in a few weeks, that will be the conversation that I'm having. But I found an email. I was trying to remember like, when did, when did happy place first form? And I found an email from September of 2020. It was before I'd started on book lovers. I was like pitching happy place as a possible book. And we settled on book lovers instead for that next one. But you know, it's kind of like, I have this running list. 
Mm, fantastic. Okay, so I think that Book Lovers is awesome. And where what I always end with is the question, what are your top three tips for aspiring writers who would love to be in a position where you are one day? Oh, gosh. I think so much of it is like just mental resilience. So the first one, I I really do think that failing hard and fast thing, there's something to that because there's so much rejection in this industry and it continues even after you're publishing. And so kind of getting used to that is so helpful. So just being but like- what do you mean by fa- failing hard and like fast? Like quer- querying a lot of, you know, not like 400 agents at a time, but it's like you send 10 queries out to agents and- they all reject you and then you do it again. And I think what normally happens is when you get that wave of rejections, you're like, I'm terrible. I'm bad. I'm so scared of being, of hearing no again. And you can kind of clam up and not pursue it that actively and, and, and kind of stew in your self-doubt. And so just remembering that everybody's been there and, you know, you, you just kind of have to hear no a lot before you're going to hear that. Yes. And, and not taking that too seriously. Like, obviously if you're getting the same notes from, 10 agents, they're all saying, you know, the pacing of this book is really weird. Then it's like, you need to edit your book, but also it's okay to hear no. And that doesn't necessarily mean that the book is garbage. (laughs) Like it's okay to just hear no. So that one I think is very helpful. Um, I also think like writing the thing that you're most excited about is always the best idea because you really don't have control over what's going to happen with it beyond the writing process. And I think we can get so caught up in trying to anticipate trends and all of that. And that I just don't think works. So I think really, you know, the only thing you can really control is if you're happy with your book. So writing what you're most excited about is a good move on every level. Yeah. And another one more tip for being to get to be in this position. Um. I mean, this, this isn't, well, it's not really a writing tip. I think being appreciative is really helpful and just like being kind to people like that goes further maybe than you realize. <laughs> like, I don't know. Like I think about all the authors who were so helpful to me and, mm. and, you know, who blurbed me and all of that when Beach Read was about to come out and I have not forgotten that at all. And like, now I'm finally in a position where I can like tell people, oh, you should read this book. And they like actually maybe care. <laughs> and I wasn't in that position for a long time. And it's really nice to be able to do that for, for authors I love and, and people I love. And I think that at that, you know, just trying to be appreciative and generous, like goes a lot further than people realize, because there are a lot of people who are good writers. <laughs> and like, if you're a good writer and you're really nice, that is going to help. And not, I don't mean like phone, like you don't, obviously you don't want to be like, you're not, don't treat your life, your relationships like they're transactional, but just don't forget to be appreciative, I think is a good thing. I think that's so important. I love that. I think that's great. Anyway, congratulations on book lovers. It's such a great read. I recommend it to everyone. So listeners, make sure you get yourself a copy and thank you so much for your time today, Emily. Thank you so much for having me, Valerie. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre, a world leader in writing courses. If you're a fan of romantic fiction and would love to write stories in this hugely popular market, our self-paced course in romance writing will be your perfect match. 
Romance is the biggest selling genre in fiction, and many may think it's easy to write. But a good romance novel is much more than a love story. In fact, more than any other genre, there are crucial structural beats your story must hit to truly captivate your readers and have them coming back for more. This online course is your ultimate guide to writing romance novels that sell. Discover everything you need to know from the key tropes, conventions and reader expectations to the variety of subgenres and publishing options available. You'll cover how to craft a tightly structured story, one that's filled with believable characters and intimacy, as well as the right level of heat for your book category. Most importantly, you'll learn the techniques to ensure a satisfying climax every time. And because this is one of our online self-paced courses, you'll enjoy instant access and can learn at your own pace with 12 months access to all course materials. You can find out more at writerscentercomau slash romance. I loved talking to Emily and I hope you're inspired by her story as well. So many good tips and great insights. Now I have something for the word nerds like me out there. Did you know that the longest word that you can type using only the top row of a typewriter or keyboard is typewriter? There are a few other 10-letter words as well that you can make up. Perpetuity, proprietor, repertoire. But come on, typewriter. Speaking of which, I did... um, pull out my typewriter, my retro typewriter out yesterday to bash away at the keys. Probably needs a bit more ink. It's a bit faint, but it's such a great feeling, isn't it? Anyway, the longest word on the middle row of the typewriter is alfalfas. (laughs) And because the bottom row doesn't have any vowels, there aren't any standard words you can spell using just the bottom row. But, you know, maybe some Scrabble nerds out there might... um, might have some ideas. So there you go. Now you can all sleep. This brings us to the end of this week's episode. Thank you so much for joining me. Feel free to connect with me on social media. I'm at Valerie Koo on Twitter and Instagram and I'm over at ValerieKoo.com. And uh, do join us in the podcast listener community on Facebook. Love to have you in there. So many fantastic, aspiring and emerging and established authors from all walks of life. Just search for So You Want to Be a Writer podcast community on Facebook and request to join. Love to see you in there. Thanks for listening, everyone. And I look forward to chatting to you again next time. Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writercentre.com.au slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writercentre.com.au slash news where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions and much more.